JPP in his 11th season started his career course with the Giants. Murray is the back. Reeves again, great protection, throws, and that will be caught. That's Adam Troutman for the touchdown. So he goes to another guy. Watch this hard move and back to the post right here. Down on the goal line against his own defense. And Drew Brees squeezes it in there perfectly. Hey now, hey now, and hey now. It is Monday night going into Tuesday. I am Steve Bennett. This is the Sportscasters. Uh, We are in season number 10, winding down season 10 as we get closer to the end of 2020, which I'm sure will be a relief to everyone. I've been sitting on these interviews for a lot longer than I normally do. Uh, an interview with Ben Ryder, who is a Yale grad, a good friend of the program, has been on many times. He has a new podcast out. We talk, uh, Ben and I talk about him. He's the Astros guy, right? He wrote the book Astros Ball, Astro Ball, I guess. And when people want to talk about the Astros, they go to him. And when the scandal broke, many people went to him, including me. And he said, not now. I'm going to do a project. And the project is called The Edge. It's a podcast. We talk about that. Also, Brandon Sneed is on the show. He's the second guest. He's the author of a book we've been working on in the book club, and we will get to that. All right, first things first, as I've been doing here for a while now, just kind of starting the podcast off with something. You know, I just haven't gotten in here, you know, in 10 days to do this, and I don't know why. You know, and I've talked a little bit about how one thing that's been hard for me over the last couple of years, especially the last year, is totally being honest, totally being myself, totally being vulnerable. And I don't know if the election, which just happened, kept me out of this room, if I didn't want to come in here when the emotions of that were raw. You know, I really don't want this podcast to be about that. I don't think anyone comes on here to find out what I think about the election. Now, if it comes up in like a discussion with Jeff Perlman, I feel like I need to be better about being honest, completely honest about how I feel. You know, I sort of pointed out that I didn't feel like I went all the way with Jeff Passan in a discussion that we had when he was on last time. I felt like I could feel myself holding back and I was really, really embarrassed about that and didn't like that. And I left it as it was, but believe me, a large part of me wanted to take the ax to that and cut some stuff out of there. But for whatever reason, there's been something keeping me out of this room the last seven to 10 days because every day I would wake up and I'd say, all right, today's the day I have to post that podcast. And every day I absolutely had time to do it. But for some reason, I didn't. Something was keeping me out of here, you know, and it wasn't the podcast. You know, like I'm still energized to do the podcast. There was just something kind of holding me back. You know, and I think 2020 has had that effect on people, not just me, but people in general. You know, sometimes you're just not, you just, you're not the person you need to be. 
you know, and I'm not making any excuses for myself. Like, look at, you know, I'm having a much better 2020 than 2019, if I'm being honest. You know, 2019 was the year from hell for me. You know, I had three surgeries in 289 days, and yeah, the third one just barely bled into 2020. But when I think about it, it's 2019, right? 2019 was the year where I bottomed out health-wise. You know, and I seen the effect that that took on my family, and it took an effect on me. And I'm not the same person yet that I was you know, in February of 2019, before that happened, it all started in March. You know, I'm not that guy yet that I was then. I'm, I'm, I might never be that guy again. I'm not the guy that I was before everything happened in 2013. I will never be the same as I was before my surgery in 2013, which was my hardest. But look at 2020 has been bad, but not as bad as 2019, right? And every day I wake up and I have this beautiful daughter who makes every day just that much better, you know? And Tammy and I have had a good 2020. Being together every day hasn't hurt us. It's been fine. You know, so I'm fine. I'm okay. You know, I always say about elections too. I mean, not to get into it, but like, my life has been almost exactly the same, no matter who the president has been. You know, not a lot about my life is directly tied in to who the president is. You know, so I'll survive. You know, and like the Saints, man, what a game last night. And I'm going to talk more about the Saints and one last thing. I'm not going to get too far into it. I'll save that for one last thing. But I don't know what it was. Maybe it's the uh, maybe it's the cold November rain, right? I don't know what it is that's kept me out of this room. Uh, but we know that nothing lasts forever, even cold November rain. So if it was that, it was that. But I'm back. Like I said, we're going to take a break in a second. We're going to talk to Ben Ryder. And then we'll do the book club update, which has some updates, as it always seems to. And then we're going to talk to Brandon Sneed, get another book off the list then i'll do one last thing it's going to be about drew Brees and the saints also i want to mention there will be another podcast very quickly after this one probably by the end of this week it's the kenny's kenny albert is back i can't wait to talk to kenny and also a man named glenn kenny who wrote a book called made men the story of goodfellas uh, so that episode will be up this week as well there's still probably at least, I would say, four or five more episodes in season number 10. So we'll get close to 30. Quickly, also, I want to give a shout out to my friend Ian. Uh, Ian and I have been emailing a lot. He was a listener of the show. I don't know how long he's been a listener, but he's been a recent emailer. And he and I have developed a little bit of a bond and he's someone I've been thinking a lot about lately. And I know he's listening because he's nice enough to do that. And just know, Ian, I'm thinking about you. I'm glad you're on the drive and reliving some amazing moments from your wrestling past. David Shoemaker, very smartly on this podcast, once said, wrestling exists in people's past. 
So I'm glad to be able to bring part of your past to you. So shout out to Ian. All right. I think that's it. Let's take a break. We'll be right back with Ben Ryder. Our next guest on the show today is a sportscaster family member. He's been on many, many times. He's a Yale graduate, a friend of the show. It's been a bit, but it's great to have him back. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the Astros guy, Ben Ryder. Welcome back, Ben. It's been a bit. How you doing, man? Good, Steve. How are you? Oh, you know, I'm just doing the doing the 2020 thing to moderate success, I suppose. Aren't we all? Yeah, yeah. Well, welcome back. It's been a bit. We were just talking, I think. I think it's your seventh or your eighth time in, and uh, you're still a bit behind Lee Jenkins, who is... How many does Lee have? Well, he's frozen at 20 because he has, you know, not been on in a while, and I don't think he's coming on anytime soon. You know, maybe in a post-Clippers world if that ever happens, which I hope it doesn't, uh, but maybe <laughs> he would be on. But um, the one who's catching him the quickest is Jeff Perlman. Ah, another great interview. Yeah, he's kind of coming. You're talking up. to the right. You're talking to all the right people. Right. Steve. Right. Yeah. So it's uh, it's a competitive list, and people who are into it for whatever reason, like you seem to be interested in it, get re- some people like Jeff's real competitive about it. He's like, "How close am I to Lee? Did I get Lee yet? You know, he doesn't really care. He's just kidding, but uh, it's funny. Um, but you were on a you, we were on the fast track together, and then I don't know what happened. We fell you didn't off. Call me. Yeah, we fell off for a minute. So <laughs> we, we got to get back on track. Uh, but look at I just listened to every episode of the podcast that's up. But hold on, before we get to the podcast, I want to ask you real quickly what you thought of Blake Snell being taken out of the World Series game last night. Oh man. I mean, look. It's one of these things where in retrospect, it's easy to draw the bullseye around where the target's already been hit, right? I mean, we can go back and say this guy was dealing, took him out, and uh, things fell apart there. And that's certainly what looks like what happened. We don't know what would have happened if they kept him in. This is how the Rays are run. You know, they're run right. based on analytics. Uh, obviously, they're understanding of the analytics suggested that it was time to take Blake Snell out. Um, some people might argue that, you know, this is where the human factor really matters. You know, if, if your analytics are based on a sample of the whole season, well, obviously Nick Anderson was not having the success recently that he had during the regular season. So do those samples that you're basing this decision on really matter? Here, Fair question. Yeah, here's my thing. And, you know, I've never, look at, I respect analytics. You know, to me, they're very boring, but I respect them and I, I respect the need for them. Watching the playoffs this year, I started to question whether or not I still understand baseball. You know, <laughs> I remember there was this moment where the Braves. Um, we're playing this long. I think it was maybe the first day they were playing this long game against the Reds. 
I remember A-Rod was the analyst, and he maybe feels like I do, um, but much richer. Uh, They had first and second, no one out. It's like the 13th inning. You know, they haven't scored a run all day. And, you know, I'm just thinking like, okay, just bunt here. You know, let's go second and third. You know, one out. We got two guys who can, you know, get the ball into the outfield. One, it doesn't even have to be a hit. Just get it up in the air. We win the game. And it's like, instead, it's a strikeout, you know, or a double play or whatever. It wasn't the result. They didn't score. You know, and it just felt like that. it kept coming up all year where I'd be like, all right, now's the perfect time to do this. And they didn't do it. And I remember last year having a discussion with Jeff Passan right after the World Series about a decision that was made that seemed to be based on analytics. And, you know, my point at the time was just, you know, I feel like if you're making a decision, you know, based on something that you think is going to happen 74% of the time instead of 24, I think there needs to be some element of feel as to what, if you if you think it's going to be more likely to be in the 24 column or the 74 column. You know, especially in an elimination game or a winner-take-all game. Like, I don't know. Last night, it just felt so strange to take out a guy who's having one of the best performances in the history of the World Series. 74 pitches. I mean, he he gave up a single, and they're like, ah, that's it. Got to get him out. Got to turn it over. I don't know. I just don't get it. Maybe I don't get baseball anymore. Um, It just feels like a decision they made at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And... You know, when the game is being played, you know, I don't understand how you don't say, wow, we thought about this earlier, but we got a guy who's won a Cy Young Award pitching maybe the game of his life. Maybe we should wait a little longer, you know. Oh, and by by the way, the next three guys he's struck out both times so far. I don't know. I I, I hear that, Um, and there's a lot to it. I mean, the flip side of the coin is we really only focus on – Decisions like this when they don't work, right? And they're not always going to work. In this case, they didn't work in a very key moment. But I think the reason they did it was that most of the time, this decision was probably going to work. We don't focus on those. It just didn't work. Well, we did focus on a decision that worked for the Dodgers. Didn't we focus? Wasn't this a theme in Game 5 as well? And it kind of did work out for the Dodgers, right? So I don't know if that's totally true. No, no, no. I'm saying, like, in an aggregate. Like, yes, we're always going to remember this because they did something unorthodox. Uh-huh. They did something that seemed like it was based on analytics, and it didn't work, and they lost the World Series. So we're always going to remember that. I'm just, I don't, I don't, I don't think I personally agree with the decision. Uh-huh. Again, I'm biased, confirmation bias. It didn't work. But I don't know if, you know, the process that led to the decision was necessarily wrong. Did you and have we'll a feeling know, in the always, moment? Uh, yeah, I mean, my emotional feeling was, "What the hell are you doing?" Okay, <laughs> right? Like yeah. the guy, the guy's dealing. His velocity is exactly where it was in the first inning. Yeah, I mean, but that's that's what analytics do. You know, they kind of cut through your emotional response to try to make the probabilistically optimized decision. Uh, that, that's what all this stuff is designed to do. And in this case, it didn't work. And it'll always be remembered as the wrong decision. And maybe it was.
All right, fair enough. Let's move on. We're not here for that necessarily. Uh, I remember having you on uh, when the article, the cover story about the Dodgers came out. It was one of the first times you were on. And it was back in the era of this podcast where very often the guest of the show had the SI cover story um, at the moment. Cover about the Astros. Yeah, what did I say? It was the Astros. What did I say? I think you said that. It was the Ah, Astros cover for sure. Damn it. Damn Dodgers are in my head. All right, I meant the Astros, of course, because I'm transitioning to that. Uh, And I was just saying, I remember having you on in that moment. And then I remember having you on again in 2017 when... The prediction came true, and they won, and we talked all about all about it. And now here you are again um, to talk about the Astros. And I remember in 2017 saying to you, "Do you think you're going to be the Astros guys guy now?" Sort of the way, you know, James Andrew Miller is the ESPN guy. You know, like if they have a layoff, <laughs> everyone goes to James Andrew Miller because he wrote that amazing book, right? Or you know. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there's other examples. That one comes to mind. I remember asking you that at the time. You got a podcast about the Astros now. Or a couple years later. Do you feel like you're the Astros guy? <laughs> As I say in the podcast, even you know the night that they won the World Series, making this prediction come true, one of my friends texted me, well, now we know what your obituary is going to say. <laughs> which is pretty morbid. But, you know, I think that was true at the time. Um in part because of how fate played out, um, and obviously in part by my own doing. Like I leaned into this story, um, and that's a big reason why I felt such a responsibility to go back to it with this podcast after the story changed in a way that I never saw coming and nobody else ever saw coming. Um, I felt probably because I was in some measure the Astros guy, that I had to be the one to figure out what happened with the sign stealing scandal and really get to the bottom of it to a depth that I didn't think had been reached yet. I'm going to ask you for your reaction again. What was your reaction when this broke? You know, like what were your first thoughts? Like, were you thinking like, man, how did I not see this? I spent all this time with them. Were you thinking like, oh, man, this ruined it. Like, don't even afraid to be, like, personal about it. Like, what were just your emotions and thoughts when this broke and you heard about it? Can I swear on this podcast? Yes, yes, you can. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I won't. But, but you can imagine the sort of words that were going through my mind. Um, and they were going through my mind because I was so blindsided by it. You mm-hmm. know, I was hit hit by a ton of bricks, and my thoughts went to a lot of different places. First of all, specifically, could I have picked up on this, right? Like, was there something in all my time covering the Astros that I might have seen that I might have pulled on just a little bit to reveal this? I spent a lot of time immediately like going back through hundreds of pages of interviews, dozens of hours of um, video of uh, audio recordings of interviews that I'd made to try to see if there's anything. And look, specifically, there just wasn't. You know, it's not like anybody was talking about this. It's not like I was in the dugout or the clubhouse during games when this was happening. This is not to excuse myself in any way. It's just the reality. I did have unusual, even unprecedented access to the Astros, particularly the front office for a time. Um, 
But there was no way I would have seen this. And in fact, my access wasn't so much in 2017 itself when the cheating was happening. But that doesn't mean that I absolved myself, Steve. You know, I, yeah. I immediately started thinking about how I had told this story of a team that was seeking the edge in everything that it did in a culture that was driving to find new competitive advantages that had never been optimized before. And I immediately started thinking of this in an overall way, in a framework sort of way, as, well, you know, did this apply to sign stealing too? Sure. Um, and I was also, and that, that's why when I said I was surprised, I was surprised by the specifics, but in the grander scheme, I wasn't entirely shocked that the Astros had been the ones to do this because that's how I was thinking about it. And I really just wanted, needed to know more. And that's why I've spent the last eight months, more than that now probably, uh, devoting all my time to finding out the answers to all the questions that I had and I think a lot of people have. I don't know if you watched wrestling when you were a kid, but I did. And I was a big fan of the Rockers. And it was Shawn Michaels and Marty Jannetty. And then one day they were in an interview segment at Brutus the Barber Beefcake's barber shop. And Shawn Michaels kicked Marty Jannetty in the face and threw him through the glass window. And it was like this epic heel turn. And I feel like the Astros went from slaying Chapman and the Yankees on this incredible walk-off and being these, like, darlings that just always beat the tar out of the evil empire, right, to heels almost overnight. And I wonder for you, did you feel like, do you feel like you have to, had to at the moment, like, did you feel like you were, people were looking for you to, like, defend them or speak for them or, you know, as the quote-unquote Astros guys with, which we labeled you, did you feel like in the moment when the heel turn happened, when the Astros kicked America in the face and threw him through the barbershop window, did you feel like people were <laughs> looking for you to answer for that in any way? Some people were, certainly. But I actually thought that they made their heel turn in some regards earlier okay. than when the sign-stealing scandal came out. And I get into this in episode four, it was really the trade for Roberto Asuna at the end of July in 2018, which is actually like three weeks after my book Astro Ball had come out. That was when I thought, man, it seems like these guys are willing to go further than I'd imagined, you know, to, to, to gain an edge, to win. Uh, and I, I spoke and wrote about that at the time, like how that squared with, all the good things that they were doing, all of the positive things. Right, because he had all had... the innovative things that they were doing. Right, he had had domestic right, issues as well, right? Yeah, he was yeah. in the middle yeah. of a suspension for alleged domestic assault. His court proceedings were ongoing in Canada. And it uh, hit a lot of people hard, including me. Uh, and this is also the season when they started to kind of, you know, some of the players, especially Alex Bregman, started to rub people the wrong way. Like, I thought it was pretty entertaining on the whole... But, you know, baseball is a really traditional sport right. and it's traditional culture, even so. And, you know, he was outspoken. He was brash. He was all over social media. But this is Bregman in particular. Uh, you remember versus the Red Sox in the playoffs. There's a lot of trash talking. So that was kind of like when this lovable group started to show an edge to it, for lack of a better phrase. And a lot of people started to, you know, 
dislike them, whereas once they seem just like this positive underdog story, I think that the sign stealing uh, revelations turned them from heels into flat out villains, okay. right? Yeah, and I think at least at least in the public perception of them, and I think we've seen that uh, through the entire 2020 season, right? This sure. is a team America loves to hate. You know, this is a team that in the Amy Coney Barrett confirmation hearings. Senator Ben Sass of Nebraska brings up out of nowhere as like the face of cheating and villainy in America. Right. I don't know if you saw that, no, but I didn't. Uh, that's, that's, really, that, that's really what happened. Yeah. That's crazy. I remember now, let me ask you this. Let's kind of get to the podcast a little bit. So when it happened, I, I know my initial thought was I should reach out to Ben and I saw before I did, I, I thought I read a tweet that you had said that you were kind of going to regroup a bit, think it through a little bit. I don't know if that's exactly what you said, but I remember you kind of putting something out there saying you'd address it sooner than later or something like that, you know? And I think, you know, that maybe that mindset is what then eventually maybe morphed into this podcast or maybe I'm projecting there. But what about for you personally, like, did you know right away that you wanted to use this to springboard into another Astros related project? Did people reach out to you about this? How did you, how did this kind of come to be? It was a process. The one thing I knew when this thing happened was that I didn't want to fling a bunch of hot takes or just angles out there. You know, that's never what I'd done about the Astros. Even the initial cover story was based off of really deeply reported right. uh, story that, that I'd written. Uh, I didn't think that it would serve anybody, I didn't, especially you know the public, for me to just fling some stuff out there and into in, throw some wood on the fire or whatever. I knew that first of all, as I said, I felt the duty to respond to this and to dive back into this. And I also knew that if I was going to do it, it was going to be in a very deep, time-intensive, deeply reported way. And a lot of people on Twitter, you know, a lot of people were, <laughs> were, were, were throwing a lot of hate my way when this thing happened, which I understand. But other people were saying, you know, you got to write a sequel to your book, or you got to write a coda or a new epilogue to your book. And I thought about that. Then I thought about it more, and... Um, I really became intrigued by the podcast idea, by the, the way, by the uh, kind of rich way in which this thing would allow me to tell this story over, you know, give me a lot of room to do it as well over, you know, six plus episode series. So uh, that's why I, that's why I settled on it. The podcast kind of starts with this, you know, this 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 guy I can't remember his name picture. And Mike Bolsinger. Okay, Bolsinger, yeah. And he he kinda painted this picture which I I was thinking about when he was talking about it, where he gets beat up by the Astros. He thought he pitched pretty well. You know, they're hitting everything. I think it was a few walks, you know, laying off all the close ones, you know, four hits, maybe a bunch of runs. He knows he's gonna get sent down. He gets sent down and he paints this picture of him sort of like I pictured it like half dressed for the game. But also, you know, with the rest of his stuff in his bag and he's standing out front and people are like milling around waiting for the gates to open and at will call, you know, and his wife just kind of pulls up in, in her car and they like and, you know, whisks him off to the 
minor leagues never to be seen again. And it's kind of, I, I suppose, meant to be a look at the collateral damage in this. You know, the people, people's lives, maybe to put a light on the fact that, you know, it didn't just cost uh, Clayton Kershaw a ring in 2017 or whatever, but also, you know, a career here, a career there, whatever. I thought it was pretty slick. Uh, what about starting with that <laughs> and uh, and uh, maybe a little bit more on, on him because he's an interesting an interesting way to start there. Sure. No, I, I didn't want it to be slick. Um, but I wanted to really center the story on, as you say, the human cost of what they did. And it's complicated if you're Mike Bolsinger because he was like a tenuous big leaguer, as I say. You know, like he was a He's a soft-tossing righty in a league of flamethrowers. The area was already near five. He was a journeyman who was hanging on to his job by his fingernails. And any night could have been his last. But the fact is, his last night was a night that happened to be the peak of the Astros scheme as far as the number of times they banged the trash can in a given game. It was that night, that night that they destroyed him. Now, would they have destroyed a guy like Mike Bolsinger anyway without the trash can? It's possible. This mm-hmm. is an incredible lineup in 2017. Right. Uh, they beat up pitchers like Mike Bolsinger all the time. But he robbed the, they robbed him of the chance of finding that out fairly. And they robbed him of the chance of maybe getting through that night and then, uh, you know, maybe starting a run the next night and he maybe still be there, right? So... That that was the real reason why I, uh, I I started there, and kind of branch out over the course of the series from there. You know what I was thinking about? I was thinking about like I wonder, like if he did this, you know, if he redid this and it was about steroids. I wonder if there's like a pitcher who played for the Pirates, and in '98 they played the Cardinals. He got called into the game. You know, McGuire hit a home run off of him. Gets taken out. Next time he gets in the game, he's playing the Cubs. You know, Sosa hits a home run off of him, and then he's out. They're like, that's it. We can't bring him in anymore. You know, I was just thinking about that. I was thinking about other baseball scandals, if there's a guy if there's a guy like that. You know, it just made me think of that. You know, I wonder if there's some poor guy who was toiling along with the Pirates, and he's sitting there now thinking, you know, if those guys weren't on steroids, those are long fly balls. I'm still in the major leagues. I don't know. I'm sure. I'm sure there. Are, I'm sure there are. Uh, you know, we think when we think about Major League Baseball, we think about the superstars, yeah, we think about trophies and all that. We don't think about the guys who are just hanging on, hanging on to their dream, one night after the next. Um, and in some ways, those guys make up the majority of the league, right? Like most guys aren't well-paid superstars. Um, they're just trying to hang on. And uh, the Astros made sure that Mike Bolsinger couldn't. They only they only think of him when they have a moment like Francisco Cabrera had, or like uh, gee, I already forgot his name, the guy for the race who had the big, big hit the uh, in game. Oh, Brett, Brett Phillips. Yeah. yeah, that's when we think of those guys, right? Um, what about doing a podcast? You know, to me, I've been doing one since 2011. You know, potentially to mediocre results, but um, you know, usually you do your research and you prepare and then you write something. And and they're still writing. I mean, obviously, it's not like you got you turned the mic on six times and sort of winged it. But what about preparing to do it as a <laughs> as a podcast as opposed to, you know, what you're used to doing, stepping out of your 
stepping out of your lane a little bit, just a little bit. It was really different, you know. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I, I wrote all the scripts, yeah, and basically the the length of the scripts is probably about two thirds of a book, right? Sure. <laughs> In themselves. So, but then you got to produce the thing, and it's an incredibly time intensive process. Uh, it's been eight months every day to make uh, the series. But I was lucky in that I met a group of people who really, really know what they're doing. And it's called Prologue Project, so the people I directly made it with. Um, they're guys named Leon Nafok and Andrew Parsons and you know, some other, other folks there who made the series Slow Burn, seasons one and two. I don't know if you've listened to that, but it's a really successful podcast focusing on political scandals. And now they make a series called Fiasco, which also focuses on political scandals. So they're not necessarily sports guys. They're or sports scandal people. guys. Yeah, they're fact, sc- yeah. But they know scandals. They know, they know scandals, how corruption yeah. <laughs> takes root. They know. So, like, it was really a great partnership on this. And besides knowing scandals, uh, in my opinion anyway, they know how to make a really, really quality, compelling podcast. So it was really those two pieces. They're their knowledge of scandals and their skills as far as making podcasts that convinced me like, you know what, this partnership is the one. So you did obviously the reporting, the writing, your talents mm-hmm. on it. Did you, you know, edit and that kind of thing? Like, I mean, not, maybe you're not sitting there like highlighting and deleting, but like, did you get involved in the editing process? And like you said, I guess the production of it, was that something you did as well? <laughs> Not as much. I'm, okay. I'm really fortunate to have a great, talented producer named Sam Lee, Samantha Lee, um, who, who's way better at that stuff than I am, way better in meaning that I don't know how to do it at all, and she definitely, definitely does. I was involved as far as notes and suggestions and you know, saying music should come here or we should cut this off here right. and all that, but I was just really lucky to have Sam on this project for sure. Was there anyone that wouldn't go on the record with you? Like, was there any, during your reporting, I guess, of it, did you ever get to something or someone? I mean, obviously, you know, um, current Astros weren't about to call you up and be like, yeah, you know, there was a thing on my shirt. You know, that's why I wouldn't take it off. Like, I know that wasn't going to happen, but, like, was there any moment where you're like, you know, I really need this person to talk, and and you call them, and they're just like, nah, you know, I'm not, I'm not going there right now. I'm not getting involved in that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, there, yes, there, there are many, many people. Many. Okay. Like that. I'm surprised. Look, this, this is, I, am not surprised. You know, this is something that Major League Baseball obviously does not want people talking about. Right. We know that. It's something that for a lot of people who did wrong, there's not a lot of personal upside in talking about. So, yes, it was it was hard to get people. I'm, I'm proud of the people that we did get. For for instance, I even say in episode three, one of the guys I really wanted to talk to, in part because I had a relationship with him, um, and in part because he was so central to all this, and in part because I knew that his role was a lot more complicated than people understood, was Carlos Beltran. And I requested to talk to him in February. And I kept checking in for five months until finally I heard he's not ready to talk. For, and uh, 
that was a disappointment. And I ended up playing clips from a 2018 interview I did with Beltron in the episode in which he says things that now in light of the scandal just sound really different and have a really different weight to them. Uh, I'd say he was probably, if I had to name one guy that I really hoped to be able to talk to and didn't, it was probably Beltron. There's a moment in the podcast where you start talking about four other teams. I actually wrote them down. Indians, Dodgers, Rangers, and Yankees, right? You talk about that Major League Baseball, they were accused. Yeah, they were accused as well. Major League Baseball investigated it. It's never public. Are the Astros unfairly taking the brunt of this in the sense that should we should we uh, be saying more about the Yankees and the Dodgers and the Indians? Like, should we... Are they getting away with it a little bit? Are the the Astros the scapegoat here? It's a complicated question. And first I'll say that it's it's Jeff Runo, the former GM of the Astros, that, you know, reveals the suspicions that the Astros had in 2018 about those other teams' uh, sign-stealing. And what I thought was most interesting about that is that it shows the paranoia around the league, specifically in the Astros clubhouse. Like they were suspicious that other teams were stealing their signs because they knew very well what they themselves were doing or had been doing, especially the season before. But I just wanted to contextualize what the Astros did and the atmosphere, the environment in which they did it, not as a way of absolving them or excusing what they did, but as understanding it on a broader level. Now, do I think it's possible, probable even that what the Astros did went beyond what all those other teams did. I think that's very possible. Like the Astros went to the extreme in virtually everything that they did. And why should this be an exception? And there is no evidence that other teams are doing anything comparable to the trash can banging thing, to directly sending signs into the batter at the plate in such a systematic way. Uh, but that doesn't mean that other teams were not breaking the rules by using devices or technology to steal signs. Uh, and that's the context in which this all happened. This has been, you know, pretty successful. Um, geez, you guys are like at, I've seen as high as like three. I think you posted a picture on the iTunes charts doing really well. And yeah, I wonder like, have you, have you sat back and thought, man, maybe I want to do this again. Maybe this is, a niche for me like maybe this can be maybe there's another story that that can be like this or you know like where do you stand what do you what do you want to do i, I noticed that si isn't in your bio anymore i know there's been a lot of turnover there um wh- what do you want to do like where do you stand and as we near the uh end of 2020 and the calendar's gonna flip over where, where do, what do you want to do you want to do more of this what, what do you think the future holds <laughs> I feel like I can't look forward. I'm still in the process of finishing this series. It's been so all-consuming and overwhelming for the last eight months, in addition to the much bigger ways in which the last eight months have been consuming and overwhelming for everybody, that I haven't looked forward too much. But I will say that I, I do think I found that this method of storytelling is really rich and you know, really connects with people on an emotional level that sometimes even the best of print pieces can't. Uh, and I've learned a whole lot from doing it as well. So I'd be open to doing something else. 
will I make another series about the Astros? I don't know. Like I, I might have written my last word about them ever <laughs> after this. But I've learned a couple times to uh, never say never about that. So we'll see. The sports guests are here with our longtime friend, Ben Ryder. Um, we have been with him since literally. I bet there's not a lot of people who interviewed you when the article came out, when the book came out, and now when the podcast came out. Uh, let me ask you this kind of about being the Astros guy. I would think that in the – I don't know if you've thought about this, and I know it doesn't matter, but it's interesting – in the minds of the Astros, I feel like you were a little bit of a folk hero, right? You're this guy who believed in them. You know, you predicted they'd win the World Series before they did. It's cool. Like, I, if I was on the Astros, I'd have these, like, real warm feelings about you. Like, super cool. You, you, you believed in them. You wrote the awesome article, then this awesome book, you know, Astro Ball. And now, but now, I mean, you're just, you're, you were a reporter then, you're still a reporter. Uh, but now you've kind of, instead of writing a cool thing about him, you've made this less cool thing, <laughs> you know. And I'm sure there's some Astros who, I don't know if they would defend what they did, but maybe, I don't know, maybe they maybe they'd say something like steroids players did. You know, we weren't doing anything other people weren't doing. You know, that kind of a thing. I don't know. But do you think that you think you took a hit in the eyes of the players and owners and people in the front office who may have thought a certain way about you in the article and Astro ball era of your Astros guy career compared to now. Oh man. I don't know about that one, Steve. Uh, I, I, I honestly don't really know or necessarily care what the Astros ever thought of me, you know, like my only goal the whole time was to reveal what they were doing and to tell the truth about it. And that continues to be my goal. And obviously I missed part of the truth or wasn't shown part of the truth or I didn't understand part of the truth um, until recently. And uh, that I'm just, that's what I'm trying to, to get to the bottom of now. Moneyball was a thing, right? For It still is. You know, Moneyball. And then... Jonah Carey, the now canceled Jonah Carey, uh, had a book called, I think, The Extra 2% about the way the Rays did their work. And you had Astro Ball. You know, it seems like over the years, the idea of Moneyball has certainly taken a hit because they can't win anything. You know, they just they can't win a playoff game, let alone a series, it seems like. And... I wonder what you think about the legacy of Astro Ball. Like, is it just totally destroyed? Or are people who overlook what they accomplished because of this making a mistake uh, because all the other stuff was really good and successful, right? Like, I, is it a mistake to just boil the whole thing down to, eh, they were cheaters? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's certainly a mistake. Yeah. Um, I think how to say this. It's not exactly that. It's not like, you know, when you look at what I wrote about an Astro ball, it's not like none of that stuff is untrue. Right. I mean, it's all true. Right. As far as their technological innovations and how they use the analytics and their strategies. 
um, you know, whether it's good or bad or whether it might have some consequences that I certainly didn't see and maybe the rest of the world didn't see or much of the rest of the world didn't see at the time, uh, that's up for debate. But I think one thing that is important to understand is that what the Astros did, Astro Ball, for lack of a better term, was just incredibly influential in baseball. And a lot of other teams, including the league itself, kind of became the Astros in a lot of ways as far as prioritizing efficiency and leveraging technology and all of that. So really, I mean, in some respects, the Astros are everywhere now um, as pioneers often are. All right, you can follow Ben on Twitter. He's at Ben, R-E-I-T-E-R. The podcast is called The Edge, and it's got a clever logo of the Astro star, but the E is falling off the edge. It, it, it indicates they went too far. Um, and, of course, you can get The Edge where you got this or any podcast. They're not hard to find. Um, listen, Ben, thank you for being on today and, and for being on when the article came out and for being on when the book came out and when they won the World Series. All those times we talked to you. I appreciate them all. Anything else you want to mention? Anything else you want to promote? Any other plugs? Any questions for me? <laughs> anything? Is there anything less left to be done today? Uh, I, I feel like I've probably plugged uh, plugged the edge enough. Uh, now, now all your listeners can do is actually listen to it. Uh, Steve, just want to thank you. You've always done a great job. I've always loved talking to you. And, you know, I'm going to try and catch uh, Lee Jenkins. Sometime. Yes. In the near future. Might take a while. Yeah, let's we'll uh, there. let's do it again quicker than the last time. And uh, best of luck with this and talk soon. All right, dude. Take care. Could've used a few pounds Tight pants, points, hollering out She was a black-haired beauty with big dark eyes And points all her own, sudden way up high I often wonder if I could pull this song off in karaoke I don't know. I know the number one rule for karaoke is you better damn know the words of that song. That's why I think if I was ever going to do karaoke, I'd probably do Given to Fly. You know, I just know that song so well, and it doesn't, I don't think it's that hard to sing. But uh, this is one I think about. I've never done karaoke. Well, I did it when I was like in the sixth grade. I like sang with four other guys. We sang My Girl, and I just did at the end and pretended like I was singing it. But. Yeah, if I had to try to pull one off, I, I wonder if I could pull off night moves. Anyway, thanks to Ben Ryder for being on the podcast today. I want to quickly update the book club. In a second, we're going to talk to Brandon Sneed. He, of course, uh, wrote the book Sooner about Lincoln Riley. It was an interesting interview. I enjoyed getting to know Brandon his first time on the show. Uh, that means there's two books left that we've been reading on the book club, and they are Peyton and Breeze. The man who, the men who built the greatest offense in NFL history. Uh, that's by Jeff Duncan, and of course they had a great night last night, which we'll talk about in one last thing. The other one is Made Men: The Story of Goodfellas by Glenn Kenny, and he will be on to talk about that book on the next episode. Now, 
that's not it because it never seems like the list stays the list for long. Uh, already we've added a new book. It's called Everyday Hockey Heroes, Inspiring Stories on and Off the Ice, Volume 2 by Bob McKenzie and Jim Lang. And Bob McKenzie will join us to talk about that book. Kind of a funny story. So I got a book sent to me and the publisher is in Canada and they sent a priority mail and it needed a signature. So one day I'm just sitting, you know, at, the, at, at my couch and I can see out the door and I see the mailman pull up and the mailman had already been there that, during the day. And it, I noticed it was not my mailman. And they open up the mailbox and they put something in and drive off. So I'm very curious. I go out and see what it is. And it's a priority mail slip saying I, I wasn't home. I need to go pick up this thing and sign for it. It's like, you got to be kidding me. They, the You know, the lady is was, was, was a lady. She didn't even like even try to deliver it. And, you know, I went and picked it up and I complained and the lady at the post office said, well, maybe you have a dog because if they're afraid of your dog, they don't have to come up. I don't know how they knew I had a dog. I mean, I have an eight pound dog, but I'm not sure that Colston is going to scare any mailman. Anyway, Everyday Hockey Heroes by Bob McKenzie and Jim Lang. It's volume two. They've already had one of these out and Bob McKenzie uh, will be on soon. Uh, there's also a couple more books I want to add. I want to take a run at Jim Gray. Uh, he has a book called Interviewing the Goats or something like that coming out on November 10th. He would be really interesting. And also, there's this guy named Daryl Belfry, uh, who actually is a big reason my brother Anthony played D1 hockey and a huge reason that Patrick Kane is in the NHL. And he has a book out called Belfry Hockey. And Anthony said that he would interview him with me. So hopefully... We'll add that book and talk to Daryl Belfry at some point. All right, but in a second, we're going to take a break. We'll have Brandon Sneed on. We'll get Sooner off the list. Next podcast, Made Men, the story of Goodfellas by Glenn Kenny. And don't forget, Peyton and Breeze by Jeff Duncan. All right, we'll be right back with Brandon Sneed. All right, our next guest, not an OU grad, but he has a book out, and it's about an OU coach, and it's called Sooner, and I'll never miss an opportunity to play that fantastic fight song. A warm sportscaster's welcome. It's his debut to Brandon Sneed. Hey, Brandon, how you doing? Good, man. How are you? Very good. Uh, Just finished reading Sooner, uh, The Making of a Football Coach, Lincoln Riley's Rise from West Texas to the University of Oklahoma, and... You know, I didn't know, I'll be honest, I didn't know as much about Lincoln Riley as I thought I did, really. I didn't know much at all. He kind of came out of nowhere. Okay. You know, he came out of, came out of no, not, I mean, not nowhere. I mean, obviously, as a Sooner, I've been a Sooner fan. Uh, when I was a kid, there was a guy on my street. He was about nine years older than me, and he was the best high school football player ever in my town. And right. he had offers to Penn State and Syracuse, you know, all the East, the good East uh, D1 schools. But he wanted to go to OU so bad, so he's like a preferred walk-on. And he spent basically four years backing up Jason Belzer um, okay. at Oklahoma. So I've been a fan for a long time just because, you know, this kid that's, you know, this kid on my street, he went to college there. 
played football there. And I remember when he became the offensive coordinator. But what happened out of nowhere was just that suddenly Stoops was gone. He was the head coach. You know what I mean? Like that right. just happened one day. Yeah. Like you open Twitter one day and boom, he was he was the head coach. Yeah. You know, and uh, but yeah. let's get into it. Um, let's start with this. Why did you come to write a book about Lincoln Riley? Is there a backstory there at all or someone you're interested yeah, in? Um, yeah, I was writing for Bleacher Report back in uh, 2017 when Stoops, you know, stepped down and Lincoln was named head coach and all that. And, uh, you know, I was familiar with Lincoln um, a little bit and just, I mean, he was 33. I mean, I'm pretty sure he was the youngest head coach, you know, in the country at that point. And, um, you know, he had just done some remarkable stuff as an offensive coordinator. And so, yeah, I just pitched the story to Bleacher Report about him for like a big in-depth, you know, profile of him, uh, for BR mag, um, and spent like uh, a week, give or take down in Norman and talking to people, you know, close to Lincoln, um, in addition to spending time with him and around the team and all that. And, uh, so got a nice story together. Um, and, uh, there was just a lot of, you know, extra material that I was really interested in following up on. And then just, you know, just him being, you know, good a coach as he was that first year especially and then going on you know it's just it just had this natural like movie like narrative arc to his story um you coming up out of muleshoe texas in the middle of you know nowhere in west texas being a football player with a dream and not not working out and having to become a coach and it just all leading them to being 33 years old and head coach of the oklahoma sooners and it's just wild um and he just went through a bunch of hard stuff along the way and it just had the storybook quality to it and so late 2018, um, talking to my agent and, um, we decided to put a book proposal together and, um, you know, sold that to a publisher in the spring and it was kind of just off from there. Uh, so I guess, yeah, the short version is I just think his story is incredible and I just wanted to, you know, see what it would look like in a book form and, you know, it's kind of worked out pretty well from there. I'm always fascinated when, you know, a story becomes a book, like, uh, sort of famously on this show. Oh. S.L. Price had written a story about football in Aliquippa, and I wrote him an email. I was like, oh, I really like this story in the magazine this week. Would you come on and talk about it? And he did. And when we were we were kind of closing up at the end, and I was just chatting with him off for a second, he's like, yeah, you know, thinking about doing more with this. You know, they, I think SI had already done, like, a short film on their website with it, and it's like, I just think there's more there. I might, you know, go back down to Aliquippa and and do some more on it. And it's like, oh, it's pretty cool. And then it was just kind of cool because we kind of followed it then with him over the next couple of years until finally it was a book. And I think there's been a couple, other, another, yeah. a couple of other examples where someone was on and a story turned into a book. That doesn't happen often, obviously. Was there a certain point in reporting on the story that you kind of got the feeling you wanted to do more. I mean, obviously this wasn't your first story, but I assume the first time a story became a book. Yeah. It's um, when I was writing the, I mean, even when I was still down in Norman, um, you know, doing interviews with Lincoln and, you know, other people around there, I mentioned it to him in passing, like, you know, I feel like this, this could be a book. Um, and, you know, he just kind of, you know, it wasn't like a fully formed idea in my head. And he just kind of laughed it off and we left it at that. And he said, you know, the same thing he said ever since he just felt like he was too young 
for a book. And I mean, yeah, I mean, he's kind of right. Like he's only, you know, what, 37 now. I mean, that's just, that's young to have a book out about your life and, and all that. So I get that, but it's just most, you know, he just, it was just that natural story arc. I mean, he just had the, all the right emotional beats to it and the, you know, different lessons he had to learn, you know, growing up from a boy into a man and all that. And so yeah, it, just, it just had like all the pieces for just a good self-contained book. And, um, yeah, so I mean, I was thinking about it, you know, even back then. And then it was, like I said, my my agent was the one that first kind of pushed me to revisit it. I mean, it had always kind of been on my mind, but he was like, you know, this is really worth taking a look at at this point. And uh, we did. And, you know, it worked out because, yeah, I mean, you're right. Like, it doesn't always happen. I mean, you know, there's lots of other stories I've written that I would love to flesh out into books, but it just doesn't work out for one reason or another. And, you know, thankfully this one did. Yeah. And it's interesting that he said he thought he was too young. Was he great with it? Like, was he great when he ended up doing it? Like, how involved did he get? Did you get close with him? Like, what, what, where does it stand with you and Lincoln? And what was his role with the book? He didn't really, he didn't have a role in the book. He didn't want to. No. Um, we talked about it once. Yeah, we talked about it once um, when I knew the book was, you know, going to be a real thing. And he said he would, you know, think about it, but he just, he leaned pretty, pretty, same way just not not having a problem with the book and you know all that and just that he just he felt like it wasn't the right time for him to be involved with you know a book project about him and his life and that sort of thing and uh you know obviously would have loved to have him involved but i understood i mean it didn't come from it wasn't like this combative thing or anything like that it was just you know it was his feelings on it and I mean, I understood it. So Have you heard from him since it came out? Him. Not personally. No. Um, he, yeah, he was asked about it at the press conference. Um, and he basically just said the same thing he told me. Then it just felt like he was too young, didn't have a problem with it. Um, but just felt like he was too young to, like, be participating in a book project about his life and focusing on that kind of thing. And, uh, I mean, like I said, it's hard to blame him. And, uh, I mean, sometimes I feel a little weird about it. Like, it's always weird writing about somebody that doesn't necessarily, I mean, he wasn't like, I said, he wasn't combative about it or anything like that, but it's just one of those things where, you know, it's a real person, you're writing about them, and it's not something they're necessarily, like, on board with, but I don't know. I mean, I feel, I feel good about how it came out. I mean, I, I think it came together really well. I couldn't um, see yeah, it. I don't know. It's just, if, yeah. he, if he ever gets That's around it. to reading it, <laughs> I couldn't see him not loving it. You know what I mean? Like, it's incredibly uh, yeah. flattering, yeah, I think. Yeah, no. Yeah, I mean that. You know, that's it, it was never intended to be like. Yeah, it's not like it's a hit piece or anything hey, like, like that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it wasn't like meant to be like, hey, like we're not going to make the guy look like Jesus either. It wasn't True. like that. But yeah, yeah there's nothing. Yeah, but I mean, there's nothing you know like negative on was you know that was like being drummed up by. It was just he just happened. To, I mean, like so it's just it, it's that story that just kind of falls into place. Just the nature of you know the course his life took that uh just made sense to be in like a, a book form um did he so work Mike with Leach you gave me some... i'm sorry i was just gonna say did he work with you on the yeah. original bleacher report story was he involved in that yeah i interviewed him a okay. lot for that and yeah we spent, we spent some good we spent a good amount of time together for that we went down to norman for about a week and we sat in his office and talked for, I don't know, a couple hours, maybe a few, and talked on the phone a little bit too. And I talked with, you know, his wife and, you know, a bunch of people on the team and other coaches he'd worked with and all that. Yeah, he was, he was great with the article. 
Yeah. You mentioned Mike Leach because he's a star in the book to me. Like anytime he's, <laughs> yeah. it seems like he's involved in anything. It's going to make it a better time. You know what I mean? Like he's just such a character. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. He, Go ahead. Yeah. No, was, yeah. I mean, he was a kid. He was great. I talked to him a lot. Yeah. For the book, um, he would call me at like three in the morning. Like, <laughs> hey man, now now a good time to talk. It's like, well, you know, if, if this is when you can talk, yes, sir. Yeah, we'll exactly. Um, That's so funny. But now he uh, he was I mean, he was helpful because there was a stretch where I was working on the book and Lincoln was deciding not to be participating and uh, or I just felt really conflicted about it because I mean. Yeah, I mean, it's just on a human level, it just made me feel weird. Um, and so, but I mean, Mike Lee said, well, I mean, somebody's going to write a book about him eventually, and you are, you might as well be you. You know, was, he said something like that. And he, he also gave me some good, you know, insight, like, you know, just as a coach, like, you don't want to, like, jinx yourself by, like, working on a book about yourself. There's just something about a book. Like, it just, it, it feels like this just bigger than life thing almost sometimes to some people. And especially coaches, like, you don't want to, like, I think you don't want to like dwell too much on how you ended up where you are. Cause you're busy figuring out where you're going next. Um, and so, you know, it, he was great at just kind of, you know, we just had a conversation. I remember like one night just kind of got into all that stuff and he was just, I don't know, it was good to get his perspective on it. And, you know, cause you know, he, he's going to say what's on his mind. Um, so he yeah. was, uh, felt like it was good to talk to him about that. Plus he just had all kinds of great stories about Lincoln and talking about football. He was just, he was awesome. I want to get back to Leach, but I got ahead of myself real quick. I was going to say one one other thing about like Lincoln not being in it, not being being in it, whatever. I talked to a bunch of writers who, you know, like I was thinking about this guy named David David DeSola, I think his name was, and he wrote a book about the band Alice in Chains. I don't know if you listen to Alice in Chains or not, but they have like this wild story. Obviously, you know, two of the original guys are dead and. You know, famously, their singer is dead, and they they still go forward, whatever. And he wrote this great book about him, and, like, none of them would be involved. And it's like, I, I was just thinking, I remember talking about it. It's like, the book is coming out anyway. I just could never understand why you wouldn't want to, you know, have your say in some way. You know what I mean? Like, why just, I don't know. It's hard for me, as someone who's probably never going to be interesting enough for anyone to want to write about in a book. Uh, to understand why, you know, if the opportunity arose, why you wouldn't, why you wouldn't want it to just be as good as it could be. You know what I mean? But right, I'm no, sure, yeah, I'm sure you had those um, feelings. Uh, yeah, I don't. I guess I didn't really. I mean, I did think about that, but I also just, I mean, his explanation made sense. It wasn't like you know, if he had been like a jerk about it or something that would have been one thing but sure. it's like yeah it's just I, just I feel like you know plus i mean he's just really busy um and i mean it would have taken a lot of time talking and that kind of thing and so i don't know i just i certainly didn't take it personal and i mean it was just he you know it was just kind of how he felt about it and so you know i respected that and i mean there was a point where like i considered not doing the book just because it made me feel so weird doing <laughs> it uh, because, you know, the people I write about, I mean, you put so much time and energy into a book, like it's just, it's just not the type of thing that I wanted to be like making him uncomfortable if it didn't have to and all that. But then again, that's me just that kind of overthink everything. So, um, but yeah, it was just, yeah, I, don't know. I mean, 
I didn't have too much of a problem with it ultimately. I mean, there was a, there was a stretch there, like I said, where it was a challenge and all that. But honestly, man, it made me a better writer. It made me have to sure do more of my own research, and it had made me learn to you know trust myself and all that a lot more as a writer. I mean, my editor was great. It helped me work through all the anxieties that came along with that, and you know, I learned a lot from it. I mean, it would have been great to have him involved for a lot of obvious reasons, but I mean, it made me a lot better at what I do, and I learned a lot as a result. All right, let's go back to Leach for a second because this is really interesting to me, just, you know, Texas Tech in general. And th- and this is an example of not knowing as much about Lincoln as maybe I thought I did because as soon as I was reading the book and getting into his time um, there and, and with them and everything, it's like I right away think about the unbelievable Saturday night game, you know, in Norman – and the crazy season in the Big 12 where, you know, Oklahoma loses to Texas. Texas Tech beats Texas. And Oklahoma absolutely <laughs> destroys uh, Texas Tech, you know, on a Saturday night on ABC in Norman. And then because of the way that the the tiebreaker works that with the who plays in that, the Big 12 Championship, I think it was whoever had the highest BCS ranking got to play Missouri and then Oklahoma won that and obviously played Florida in a game where, you know, it's basically a 50-50 game going into the fourth quarter and Percy Harvin, the questionable Florida player, makes an impact. You know, in Oklahoma, of course, their questionable player going into that game was DeMarco Murray, um, who didn't play. Um, a lot of probably babble that didn't need to be added there, but I get excited talking about that Oklahoma season. <laughs> no, nah, you good. <laughs> yeah. What about, um, what about, did, did you get into that? And there's a little bit in the book about it, but did you get in anything specific about that, that Texas tech Oklahoma game um, and, and that season in general, uh, maybe Lincoln's time in Texas tech. Like what about that, that period there? Um, I don't remember getting too much into that specific game or anything, but yeah, I mean, his time, like as a player and a coach at Texas tech, I mean, that was, I mean, that's where it all started for him on the coaching front. I mean, it's, uh, I mean, he tried to walk on there and, um, had the brains for it and the mind for it, but didn't have the arm for it. Cause he messed that up in high school and, um, you know, just tackling the guy that right. accepted a pass of his and a scrimmage and, yeah. you know, the, the heat of anger uh, that only a teenage, football player in West Texas can know, you know, I imagine like you, the scrimmage game, you're a quarterback and you're on to spear a guy that intercepted you in a scrimmage. But, uh, you know, so he, he kind of, he messed his arm up, but he was a great, I mean, quarterback in high school anyway. I mean, new plays and all that. And then, so Leach saw like, you know, the potential he had as a coach and told him, you know, you ain't going to make it on the football team as a player, but you know, it's, you should look at coaching with him and, you know, I'll give you a chance to be on a personal assistant, which is a pretty huge opportunity for a 19-year-old kid. And um, you know, Lincoln had to think it over, which made Leach laugh because it's the type of job that people, he said, would, you know, kill for, type of job like that at that age. And Lincoln had to go think it over, but then he, you know, he takes on. And, you know, one of the biggest things I think he learned with, you know, coaching with Mike Leach and learning from him was, it was okay to like think outside the box because Lincoln, I mean, he had that, he had a different kind of mind than, I mean, especially growing up in a small town and, and all that. I mean, it's just, you're not exposed to people who necessarily thinking outside the box a whole lot. And he had some big ideas and stuff, but 
especially for football, but it was, you know, I just think it helped him a ton to see Mike. I mean, Mike Leach is about as outside the box of a college football coach you're going to get uh, for better and for worse. And so like, it just kind of showed him like, you know, you can, you can think differently. You can think originally and good things can still happen and even great things can happen. And um, so that's just, I mean, he just spent, you know, some really formative years immersed in that kind of approach to football just, Hey, we're going to do what we think is best. And, you know, if people think it's not traditional or whatever, you know, forget them. Like we're going to do what we think works best. And I think that's something he still kind of carries with him to this day is, uh, I mean, for, you know, he's going to, he's always going to be looking to be creating new ways of doing things and thinking outside the box. And, you know, it's just, it's just kind of started with, you know, working with Mike Leach when he was, you know, 19 years old. Yeah. I just had no idea, you know, he was on the sidelines that night, you know, or maybe he was in the booth, whatever. Um, and it just yeah. got me to thinking about, you know, when he first probably talked to Stoops about coming to Oklahoma, like I got to imagine his thoughts went back to that night, you know, and it's just wild, too, that he was at Texas Tech, you know, behind Cliff Kingsbury. And, you know, you look at where both of those guys are right now, yeah. you know, and how their lives have evolved. And it just kind of gets back to what I was saying kind of about, you know, not knowing much about the guy, you know. Never even heard of what is it, mole shoe? Is that how you say it? Like, um, yeah, mule shoe. Yeah, and mule shoe. Okay, um, but just a really, really fascinating life. So I remember the day he got the job, and uh, you know we were talking about it earlier. Um, do you think two questions? And you do touch on this in the book, but I thought this would be a good thing to bring up um, for people who maybe be interested in reading it. How much longer do you think Oklahoma had um, in terms of he'll be there waiting for when Stoops is gone? Like, How long do you think it would have been before he was plucked off? Let's start with that one. Uh, yeah. Um, from what I learned, um, I mean, he was he was taking some interviews with some pretty, like, significant schools for head coaching jobs. I mean, one in particular that I found, you know, in some articles and other things um, was, you know, I think it was Houston was, had, had flown him out for, you know, an interview um, to be their head coach. And I mean, they certainly weren't the only ones making him offers and that kind of thing. And so, yeah, I think from what I remember reading and learning, uh, talking to people and all that was, the story that I've heard and read is, you know, Stoops and Joe Castiglione, they started, you know, talking about like, I mean, we want to make sure, you know, Lincoln is around for when I'm gone, Stoops, when Stoops is retired. And so they like, they had a conversation about, you know, making them the, the head coach and waiting for when Stoops decided to retire. And then Stoops didn't really like that idea because, you know, it kind of just made it sound like he wasn't quite the whole head coach and Lincoln was kind of the head coach, but not really yet. And so it was kind of strange. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, I mean, people wanted Lincoln um, and that wasn't going to subside anytime soon. So I think, you know, they just, they wanted to go ahead and make sure. <laughs> I don't think they knew how much longer they had and they didn't want to take any chances on it. You know what I mean? Um, Cause I mean, you know, there's no way to know exactly what could happen, but it seems like he was probably going to get a really, you know, good offer that was hard. That'd be hard not to not turn to down, um, regardless of how much he liked it there. Uh, I mean, I, just, I know that he really likes it at Oklahoma. 
and he especially did back then um, and all that. So, I mean, who knows what he would have taken, but I mean, you know, the right, you never know the right opportunity comes along. You ultimately got to do what you feel like is best for you and your family. And, um, well, there's a great so, story yeah, I mean, in the it, book. There's a great story yeah. in the book where you, I think it's when he's getting the original job at Oklahoma and Stoops is like waiting for him. And he gets a call from Gil Brandt. And he's like, I think he, mm-hmm. he's, you know, hey, there's this, there's this coach you got to talk about or whatever. And Bob's like, yeah, well, he's, he's gonna be here in five minutes. Yeah. It's like the word was out. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like the word was out on Lincoln for sure. I think that yeah. was that that story. I think is is originally when he was hired, not like when he was found out about the job or whatever. But yeah, yeah, that was when that was when uh, Stoops was looking for an offensive coordinator. Yeah, yeah. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, I yeah. have this guy. I have this guy. You should look into. Oh yeah, he'll be here in five minutes. Uh, yeah, he's, he's about to walk. He's about to walk into my office. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, "Oh, that's that's great. That's a good that's a good pull on that one." Um, yeah. So it's three years. You know what? Uh, we'll get to this season in a second. But he's been there three years, and like his quarterbacks have been Baker Mayfield, who won the Heisman Trophy. You know, Kyler Murray, who won the Heisman Trophy. We're talking on a Monday, and they maybe both had their best days as pros. You know. Or no, it's not Monday. Yeah. Whatever day it is, doesn't matter. On Sunday, they might have had their best day as pros, right? I think like, today's Tuesday. Okay, day's whatever. Tuesday, you know. Like nobody knows what day it is anymore. Yeah, for me right now, the days of the week are: <laughs> do the Saints play? Yes. Okay, that's a day of the week. Like, is, and there, then, is there football? Right. On yeah. Day or not? Yeah. It's like, yeah. Yeah, but um. But yeah. Yeah, they, they had great days. Like they look like these unbelievable franchise QBs, and then. Jalen Hurts, who, you know, will get his shot someday for sure with the Eagles. You already see him out there, you know, now and again. It's, yeah. it's like he's got his package and they're working him in. He'll get his shot somewhere mm-hmm. at some point, I'm sure. You know, and now it's Spencer Rattler in year four who has had a couple bad moments, but certainly looks like the five-star quality player um, that he was brought in to be. Like, and, Spencer Rattler is incredible. Like, people talk about, oh, he might not be as, I don't know if anybody said this or not, but the vibe I've gotten just kind of like keeping up with stuff is like, oh, well, not quite Baker Mayfield, Kyler Murray, Jalen. Like they were all like juniors or seniors. Yeah, and this kid's a true. This like, kid's a redshirt right. freshman. A, yeah. yeah, I mean, he's a is he redshirt or is he true freshman? I can't remember. Yeah, he, he was there last year. He was there last year. Yeah, he was. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah. but he was still he's a fr- he's a freshman. Yep. All that. So yeah, it's, it's just yeah, and that it's just that's sports. You, man. And he's um, got a he's got a way where he just flicks his wrist too. Like he's got a really great arm. Um, yeah, he's like the best the best throwing college football quarterback I've seen in a long. Like it's just he makes it look so easy, and it's just a freaking laser. And it you know, what? I guess it doesn't make it doesn't make sense. It's interesting too because it. he's making some mistakes, which is like to me expected. But because of the way Baker and Kyler and Hertz have played. It's almost like, yeah, you know what he threw an interception. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was, that's part of where I was trying to go. Yeah, about. exactly. I mean, yeah, they they were juniors and seniors. Right, I'm sure Kyler was a junior. I can't remember. My brain's fried, like everybody's these days. Right. Yeah. Well, but Kyler had a few uh, years. Right. He was at the one year at Texas A and M, then the year behind Baker, yeah. and then the year he, yeah, he played. Yeah. So junior and Baker had been in college for a while. You know, two time walk on and all that. Yeah. Yep. 
One yeah, thing Jalen Jalen Hurts had played in yep, at know, Alabama, uh, played in every big like, game. So yeah, it's like that's that's who Spencer Rattler is like. <laughs> right. Having to the the fact that he looks as good as he does is astonishing. Like, in the just, strangest year ever, too. Not even like he had a full right, summer, right. And, you know. Yeah, like nothing about this year is normal. No, anyway. and then it's you know, the still he's coming out. I mean, yeah, like he's he's a redshirt freshman, looking comparable to. I mean. Two Heisman winners and a Heisman finalist. So he's, it's yeah. He's going to be, if not the one of the best players in college football next year. Um, oh, yeah, there's no question. It's yeah, going to be the first time Lincoln incredible. gets a guy back another year. You know, it's all been one. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's yeah. like I'm excited for that. But yeah, one thing I noticed, and it didn't just happen with Baker, and it didn't just happen with Kyler. It happened with all three of them, and that's just the Heisman Trophy presentations. That little hour show that feels like it's six hours that ESPN puts on, and you're just waiting for yeah. them to announce who the heck won the thing. And the highlight every year is how crazy is Billy Sims going to be on stage with his boomers and all that. Right. But um, it just seems like these guys just love Lincoln Riley. You know, it just seems like, yeah. I don't know, you just feel the care especially Baker, I felt like, you know, just really looked at Lincoln as like a guy who changed his life and a guy that he loves so much. And as an Oklahoma fan, it just, I'm just like, you know what? He's going to get five-star quarterbacks forever. This team's never not going to have a five-star quarterback. Like he just set the tone. What about Lincoln and his relationship with these guys, these quarterbacks, especially. And, um, what did, did you get a sense of that? Am I right on that, do you think? Yeah, I mean, yeah, he talks about it in the article and in the book. I mean, he, in his words, I mean, you know, he's going to he's gonna put it in as good old terms as he can because he wants guys to want to come play for him. But, I mean, I think he means it when he says, uh, I mean, he cares about it as much as he cares about his own kids. I mean, I, I think that's real. Um, I think it comes from a deeper place so that he doesn't, talk about a lot of necessarily seen i could be wrong on this but it's just like my uh, like imagination is kind of like extrapolating events of his life as i mean he he was a quarterback and he was a brilliant he was everything about him was capable of being a quarterback on that level except his arm because he messed his arm up you know i think that he could have i mean he was an athletic dude in high school i mean he played basketball as well I mean, he was a good athlete i mean he was a, he was like an all area punter you know like he he knew like yeah. He was an athlete, you know, and like he could have easily been. I mean, that's why he went to Texas Tech as a 19 year old, 18 year old, you know, to, to walk on. Like he really believed, like, I know how to do this. My body just can't quite do it. But if I go here and I learn from these people and get around these trainers, well, like I can figure it out. And like, I think that he was right. It's just his shoulder was too messed up. I mean, he, he dislocates his shoulder in a scrimmage and then he doesn't even get the thing like, completely reset and get the surgery needed to repair it until after playing that season on defense as a 15 year old kid. So like, that's a whole, I mean, that's his, so his shoulder was just wrecked, but everything in him wanted to be a great college quarterback. And so like, he knows exactly what that feels like and he has the mind for it. And I just think that he has this deep well of, you know, emotional intelligence on top of his football intelligence. And so he knows how to, it's not just that he knows these guys want to be great. He knows what it feels like to be great. He just, he knows how to connect with them. And I think a lot of coaches 
it's not a knock on other coaches, but I just think a lot of coaches, they know, obviously anybody who's playing the game, you know, they want to be great at it and they want to help them be great. But like, there's a difference between like wanting that and feeling like a connection with the guys, the way that I think Lincoln's able to. And it's not something I think you can teach. I think it's just one of those things you just are born with or you develop over time for a lot of reasons. Um, and so I just think that he, he knows what they want. And he, and I think that on top of all that, like he, he sees not just like, how good they are, but he knows how good they can be. And like, he helps them see that too. He helps them believe that. Cause when you're an 18 year old kid, like you think, okay, well, I want to be this great and all that. But like, you know, you're either like blindly arrogantly confident in yourself or more commonly than people realize you're racked with like self doubt, you know, even if you're like one of the most talented guys, like it's, and so he's able to show them, no, you really can be this good. And I can show you how and show you why and show you how to get there. And I think that that more than anything is what, works for him with these guys is he's able to like put the vision he has for them into their own heads and a way that they believe in it like a hundred percent and then it's just a matter of putting in the work to get there and he's just able to connect with them like that and there's a story in the book about lincoln runs into baker in the weight room and he's all bummed out and he can tell and he finds out that baker's mom was in a car accident like in hilton head or something like that and um yeah you know, he, he works with Baker to get Baker down there. And um, I, I just know it really meant a lot to Baker. And I wrote down a quote. Let me find it here. I wrote down a quote from Baker. Um, Seeing how honest he is and how much he cares about us and not just football, you can see that part of it. And that means a lot. And I think when yeah. I was just reading through this story – that's where I kind of got an understanding maybe a little bit more of what I was seeing at those Heisman Trophy presentations. You know, a little glimpse into the personal relationship that he has with these guys. And I think like you said too, with the quarterbacks especially, you know, where he sees himself as wanting to have been in that spot and he wants to make sure that. I don't know if regrets is the right word. I don't know if it's necessarily regrets, but I think he just wants to make sure that that there's nothing in their lives looking back that they will feel like prevented them from getting as far as they could have got, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, no, it's a real, it's a real thing. Like he, I mean, it was a dream he had that he didn't get to live out. Now, like he's able to, you know, help other guys live it. And, um, but yeah, I mean, especially, I mean, Baker had been through a lot by the time he and Lincoln like met at Oklahoma. Sure. And, um, Crazy and he, still, he still had a lot of, yeah, I mean, he still had a lot of growing to still do does. both as a football player and as a, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, well, we all do. Let's yeah, sure. But I mean, like he, like, but yeah, Lincoln was just the exact right coach for Baker at the exact right time. Um, you know, it's just, so, and that's, I mean, uh, and Baker was the guy that I think guy I think about a lot when I talk about, you know, Lincoln's connection with players and all that. I mean, it's just, that's what naturally made this book such a good story. I mean, Lincoln goes from this dream of being a college quarterback to not being able to do it to helping Baker Mayfield, one of the most like off the, you know, cuff, hot-headed football uh, quarterbacks college football scene in a while, like helping them, you know, win the Heisman and become a number one overall draft pick. Like, I remember... Man, I remember pitching a story on Baker Mayfield to Bleacher Report. And they're like, hey, like, this dude's going to, like, he's going to be something. Like, it was, I think it was the beginning of his last season there. And I remember my editor was like, dude, if he didn't get drafted in the first round, be real. I was like, dude, he, yeah, he is. And they just, nobody believed in Baker Mayfield the way that 
Baker and Lincoln did. Um, and next so thing you know, he's uh, planting the flag yeah. at the at the fifty yard line in Ohio Stadium, right? Like it yeah, yeah, yeah. That, yeah. that season didn't take long to see where that was going. Now Lincoln's just got to figure out how to make that connection with the defensive end and a linebacker or two, right? I mean, because yeah. here he is, he's 0-3 in bowl games, right? But those bowl games are also playoff games. And look at they should yeah. have won that Georgia game. You know, and as a fan watching it, I felt like Lincoln and Baker got a little tight at the end. And the guy sure. the, the the damn linebacker for Georgia was not tight um, for whatever reason. I can't think of his name right this second. Um, but he was just, he wrecked the game really for them. But it felt like they got tight at the end. And look at, I wanted to see them play Alabama because I thought they were better than Alabama that year. Uh, but it's a hard case to make when they didn't beat Georgia. Um, but yeah, they, but yeah. they could have, and I think should have, um, Regardless, and then the other two years, look at the teams were just way better. Like LSU was just way better than them. I don't think it's an indictment on Lincoln Riley, you know, that the best LSU team maybe yeah. of all time beat beat yeah, them. Yeah, now they were know. unreal. Right, you know. But um, what about getting over the hump at Oklahoma? And like, what do you see for Baker or not Baker for Lincoln in the future here? What What do you think? Where do you think the program stands today? Obviously, they're not going to win the national championship this year. Uh, and I think maybe not having to worry about it is a good thing for them in some way. You know, there's less pressure this year because we already talked about this, that Spencer Rattler is going to be back next year. Yeah. You know, and they're a young team this yeah. year, you know, and they'll have a lot of guys back. But where do you think he stands having the job three and a half years now, three trips to the playoffs, three Heisman Trophy finalists, two winners? Where do you think he's at right now? I think he's fine. <laughs> That's like, you know, I was, um, it, it, I mean, like, listen to what you just said. Like, this is what drives me crazy about football fans and, and sports fans in general with their teams. Like, I get it, um, but I don't at the same time. Like, yeah, like, dude, I know that, like, not you specifically, but just sure. you in general the royal people, you. like, yep. the royal you. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, like, I know you won a national championship, but, like, that's so hard to do. Yeah, and it's like, well, I know that's why he gets paid millions of dollars. He's supposed to help him win all this, that, and the other. It's like, it's so hard to do. And he's been within a game of it three years straight, like his first three seasons as a head coach, starting when he was 33 years old. Give me a break. Like, it's going to be fine. He's not going anywhere anytime soon unless he wants to. And I don't think he wants to. And... Dallas always like, makes yeah, you nervous. Yeah, Spencer Rattler. I mean, Spencer Rattler is going to be incredible. He's only going to get better. He's already better than 99% of the quarterbacks in college football, probably. I mean, it's, you know, yeah, like they got to figure out their defense. And I don't know what the answer is for that. I don't know how you necessarily fix that overnight. I mean, certainly seems like Alex Finch is trying. If anything, he might be trying a little bit too hard, focusing too much on the big plays and the turnovers and all that. But I'm not right. a coach or an analyst. I think you know, you're right about that. I, I ain't, I'm not criticizing anybody. It's just. You know, let's just, in my mind, it's like, yeah, like turnovers are great, but like, let's just worry about tackling people first and go from there. Um, Because it seems like they have trouble with that, which is odd to me. But like I said, not a defensive football expert here. Um, Fair point. Yeah, like, fair point. Lincoln, I mean, just just watching what I see, uh, you know. Uh, But it's, uh, no, but Lincoln's going to be fine. Like, the team's going to be fine. They're going to win a national championship at some point. They're probably going to win 
multiple national championships at some point. And I mean, even in the book, like, I mean, that's what the last part of the book's about is like, this isn't going to go on forever. Like he's not going to be phenomenal forever. There's going to be down years. Mike Leach says it, Urban Meyer says it in the book is, you know, there's going to be hard times. And like, that's, that's going to be the real test. That's where you're going to see what kind of coach he really is. And if he's the coach that he seems to be, he's going to figure it out. That's what he's done every step of the way, starting with, you know, Mike Leach getting fired when he was, when Lincoln was just a, receivers coach at texas tech and was suddenly the offensive coordinator for a bowl game against michigan state that they won you know and he was 25 i think at that time and then he goes to east carolina which is you know i love them they're my hometown football team but they're terrible at football most years and he turned them into a nationally ranked program that was one of the best offenses in the country you know, and so like it stands to reason that he's going to figure it out at oklahoma he's already figured it out enough to get y'all in you know, college football playoff three years in a row, you know, could still get there this year, maybe who knows. Um, but yeah, like just, it, it's going to be fine. He's, he's a good, smart guy and he cares a lot about being good at this and he's going to figure it out. All right. The book is called sooner the making of a football coach, Lincoln Riley's rise from West Texas to the university of Oklahoma. And of course you can purchase it, you know, where you buy books. Uh, it would make a great football gift Christmas gift for a football fan I'm trying to say let me ask you this is kind of the last thing the one team the one job that makes me nervous in regards to Lincoln is the Cowboys right because (laughs) because they're the Cowboys which is something in in itself right America's team and then they're also in Texas right which okay yeah he's from Texas and Jerry Jones is the owner, and he's not shy, and he's not cheap, right? He will, yeah. He will pay for something he very much wants, and yeah. also he's got a great quarterback. I think he's still got. I mean, I think at the very least, Dak Prescott will be a be there next year on another tag deal at the very least. Um, yeah. And I think Dallas is is kind of seeing that they need Dak Prescott. A lot more than they thought they did. Um, and they have a beautiful stadium and just everything you could want, right? And they dodged the bullet last year, but now it looks like Mike McCarthy might stink. And that's going to be a long year there. And and Jerry Jones, what if he says, you know what? I can't do another year with Mike, and he's out. And they take another run. Do you think – it's a long way to ask. Do you think – Lincoln could be poached. Is Dallas the spot you think it's most likely? And kind of where do you stand on his NFL ambitions? Do they exist? Or, or maybe, does he want to be, you know, Joe Pa or, you know, um, whoever who stays at a program for 25 years and they build a statue in front of the stadium for it? You know, whatever. Where do you stand on all that? Yeah, um, I don't know, man. I mean, it's uh, if the Cowboys come calling, like you got to think about it, especially because, like you say, you're right. They're in Dallas. I mean, it's uh, I know that being close to home is important to Lincoln. Um, and Dallas, I mean, he's he's got he already has like roots in Dallas in some ways, and that's where like one of his mentors, Donnie Duncan, lived for a long time before he passed away a few years ago. And they're all the time going out and boat on a lake out there outside Dallas and. Uh, I mean, I, I'm, I know he and 
Jerry Jones know each other a little bit, if not more than they've let on publicly. Um, you know, so, I mean, it's, it's certainly like, a, 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 I think it's a possibility. Um, but I mean, he's also a competitor. I mean, he, he's a passionate guy and I think he wants to do like, I, I think he wants to do some big things in Oklahoma first. I mean, I don't, I think he wants to win national championships there and all that as far as, being the guy who's there for 25 years and gets a statue, I don't think he, he cares about statues a whole lot. But he, uh, I just, I think he's going to do what feels like, you know, the, the best challenge for him and the best use of, you know, what abilities he feels like he has. And if he feels like he can keep growing as a coach and keep doing new and exciting things at Oklahoma for a long time, like I'd be surprised if he left. Uh, but yeah, I mean, if the Dallas Cowboys can call on after he's had a few good years at Oklahoma, I want some championships who knows man i mean it's, it's the cowboys right like it's yeah one it's of the scary. biggest coaching jobs you can it's get a scary and, job yeah yeah, yeah it's, it's a scary uh, job if you're an ou fan that it's out there you yeah know? and i mean it's like, like just uh i mean just the atmosphere of you know that stadium the cowboys are playing like even yeah. just the regular season game is just it's unlike anything else i've ever personally it's america's team in the sports world it's america's yeah, and, team I mean, well they're it's America's team, yeah. better or worse, right? Like, it's, it's yeah. the Cowboys. Uh, and they so built yeah, that I mean, stadium. Little... Everyone needs to go to, like, everyone, it's like when that schedule comes out every year, you know, I've already thought about it, like, three different times. Like, oh, maybe this is the year, you know, I should go see that TV they built in there and, you know, be in that stadium. <laughs> it's ridiculous. And, yeah. It's unreal. It's unreal. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, look, who knows? Like, he, yeah, there's no telling. Uh, but I'd be... I'd be surprised. I wouldn't be shocked either way. Right. Um, well, I would be shocked you know, if he like yeah. left to go coach the, I don't know, Carolina Panthers. And maybe that's a bad example. Yeah. He's got some roots out there too. I don't know. Um, unless, yeah, no, like, I, I, no, I know what you're saying. You I know agree. what I'm saying? I mean, I'd be shocked. I mean, I'd be shocked if he left in the next few years. I don't think he's going anywhere for a few years at least. Um, Unless it's so, yeah, Dallas, I think you're safe for. I think you're. I think you're safe for now. Yeah, I just worry about Dallas. Yeah, I don't know. It's, yeah, that's a real worry, man. It it's, is. It's the Cowboys. Yeah, right and there. it's just it's got everything right. Like there's nothing. Yep. You know, jeez. All right, it's at Brandon Sneed on Twitter. You can find Brandon there. <laughs> yeah. uh, again, uh, the book is called "Sooner: The Making of a Football Coach." Lincoln Riley's rise from West Texas. University of Oklahoma. I was looking on the back, and there's blurbs from one, two, three different former sportscasters guests: Will Leach, Lars Anderson, and Jonathan Abrams. We've all been on. Um, yeah. Anything else? Anything else you want to promote? Anything else you want to mention? Um, anything else you want to get out there? Anything I missed? Any questions for me? Oh no, just <laughs> no, just. Uh... And just uh, follow me on Twitter. Working on some other new things right now. Nothing that's like ready to be announced yet. But uh, yeah, and just um, yeah, buy the book, check it out. I mean, OU fans will love it. Football fans will love it. It's just uh, it's just a great story um, that you know just reminded me of like my favorite movies as like a kid. Uh, just uh, I mean, it's got you know drama and inspirational stuff and just good gold sports stuff going on in there too. So. Check it out. I think y'all gonna love it. Is it another book? Are you gonna stick with writing books for a bit? Is that? I mean, you know, obviously, you don't want to announce the project itself, but. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm working on a couple of books. Couple books, yeah. uh, okay. Not, and some other stuff. Yeah, a lot of stuff in the year. COVID has just made sure the whole right being a COVID sucks. writer thing screwing up everything for everyone. 
yeah. just it's just a great adventure right now. No one knows what For the heck sure. is going on. Right. So yeah, well, working on some stuff. We'll see. You sure you don't have any questions for me? This is gonna be your last opportunity. I just want to make sure. I don't want you saying that <laughs> I didn't give you this chance. Um, I think I'm good, man. All right. What what do you, what do you want people to know? <laughs> no, I I want people to know that I enjoyed this. I really did, and it's not just because I like <laughs> good, not, not just because I like Oklahoma and I like Lincoln, um, but. Like I said, the first thing I thought of, you know, I read like the first, you know, the first 65 pages or something, um, you know, the first time I picked it up and I said, man, I didn't know this guy as well as I thought I did. So, but yeah, good. Thank you. I I appreciate you doing this. Glad you learned some stuff. Yeah. Thank you for letting me promote it. it. All right. Be well. All right. You too. I want to thank Brandon Sneed for being on the podcast. Also, Ben Ryder. Don't forget, you can find this episode and all episodes of the Sportscasters on my SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash sports casters. You can find me on Twitter at sports underscore casters. Uh, my email address, the sportscasters at gmail.com. I respond to every email. Don't forget about my friend, Peter. Uh, he is the host of Greetings from Allentown. At GF Allentown Pod. He has a new episode every Thursday. Come hell or high water. Uh, my man puts up a podcast uh, every Thursday. And uh, whether it's a clip show or not a clip show, he gets it up. And he, he had one I really liked recently uh, about, about earthquakes sitting on the snake. Uh, that was a cool one, if you remember that, from Superstars uh, back in... 91, maybe? Uh, also, we host the um, a podcast called the Adams Division Podcast. Check that out if you will. Uh, at A Dater on Twitter, my man Adrian Dater, Colorado Hockey Now is his website. And I want to mention the Place to Be Nation at Place to Be Nation on Twitter. Uh, I'm going to be on a podcast called Making Mount Rushmore, uh, where we made Mount Rushmores for sports video games and sports arcade games. I think that comes out like next week sometime. Check their feed for that. And also I was on a podcast where uh, Jenny Smith and I watched an episode of Three's Company on something called Pluto TV. And for more information on that, check out the Jenny position, uh, which is her podcast feed. All right. With all that said, it's time for one last thing. And I have told you guys before that on my phone on an app called Evernote, uh, I have something called One Last Thing Ideas. It's a note, you know. And on the note, I keep track of things that come into my head that would be a good thing to talk about in One Last Thing uh, because sometimes I have something current that I want to talk about and other times I don't have anything and I need something quick so I go to the list and all right, that would be a good one. Let me riff on that. I've had a note on here for a long time, and it said it's time to talk about Drew Brees. And it's been on and on and on since the summer, right? 
or I guess maybe it was even the spring. I don't know. May, late May, right, was early into the wave of Black Lives Matters, uh, the protests, which eventually became riots. And uh, Drew Brees, I don't know, he made an unfortunately poorly timed comment uh, where he was just trying to say, I think pretty obviously, that he would never stand, uh, kneel for the anthem, that he would always stand. You know, that for him, the anthem was about his grandfathers who had both fought in World War II. And to him, he would always stand. Which, 90% of the time, 99 maybe, it's a pretty benign take. Like, I don't think it should be all that controversial for someone to want to stand for the American National Anthem. Especially if they were raised that you stand for the National Anthem as a sign of respect to your grandfathers who fought the Nazis in World War II. But I mentioned that I'll admit it was poorly timed in that just a few days prior, the George Floyd incident happened, which still to this day, as far as I know, is unanimously viewed as a horrible, horrible tragedy. I don't know anyone who has defended what the police officers did to George Floyd. I've seen, I've, it's unanimous still for me to this point. And Drew Brees in no way was saying anything other than how he felt about standing for the anthem, which is what he was asked. He was asked what he would do because I think that the writing was on the wall that kneeling for the anthem was going to make a resurgence. And he got crushed, and I mean crushed. And he got very publicly crushed by teammates. You know, Emmanuel Sanders, who wasn't even a teammate yet, crushed Drew Brees. Uh, Malcolm Jenkins, who was a new teammate, crushed Drew Brees, an old but new again teammate. Right, Michael Thomas crushed Drew Brees. As far as I could tell, the only people who didn't were Marcus Davenport, and Joe Horn, a former teammate. And then there were some people who were very, very loud by their lack of response to it. But Benjamin Watson, I think, stood up for Drew Brees by not burying Drew Brees. And maybe a few other people would fall into that category as well. But very, very unanimously, whether it was Alvin Kamara, Michael Thomas, Teron Armstead, Demario Davis, Cam Jordan, they all took their shot to step on the back of the neck of Drew Brees. It was hard for me to accept. And, and I'm going to be really, really honest about how I feel about Drew Brees. And I feel, I'll tell you what I told him on the field of the Superdome. I said, thank you for making all my dreams as a sports fan come true. Because all I ever dreamed of was being able to see the Saints win the Super Bowl. And I'm recording right now sitting underneath a giant fat hat of Tracy Porter pointing to the end zone. The late great Will Smith. Scott Shanley running behind him. A great moment. Super Bowl 44, my favorite of all the Super Bowls, right? XLIV. 
I always know that XLIV is 44. And look at we've gotten really, really close the last couple of years. In the legacy-changing missed call at the end of the 2018 NFC Championship game. Will always haunt me. I guess maybe it was the 19 game, but you know, the 18 season. I, every time a Saints game ends, I take a minute to appreciate that Drew Brees is my quarterback because I know it's one game closer to the inevitable when he won't be my team's quarterback. I've been a Saints fan since 1987, and think about some of the quarterbacks before him. Billy Joe Hobart, Billy Joe Tolliver, Steve Walsh, Bobby Abair, Aaron Brooks, who was talented, just not much of a leader, not smart enough. Jeff Blake, who was good, and then he broke his ankle. And was basically never heard or seen from again. It's a long list of failed NFL players who made it true that up until the moment Drew Brees and Sean Payton arrived, the Saints had won one playoff game. And that came in the year 2000. So, like, listen, this is the list, right? Bobby Abair, John Forcade, Steve Walsh, Wade Wilson, Mike Buck, Jim Everett, Doug Neusmeyer, Heath Schuler, Danny Werfel, Danny Werfel, Florida, Billy Joe Hobart, Kerry Collins, Billy Joe Tolliver, Jake DeLome, Jeff Blake, Aaron Brooks, Todd Bauman. These were the quarterbacks for the Saints before Drew Brees came in 2006 and I was at the first game in Cleveland the first touchdown pass to Marcus Colston the start of an era the golden era of New Orleans Saints football I owe so much to Drew Brees and you know who else owes a lot to Drew Brees New Orleans the state of Louisiana he spent the beginning of 2020 feeding the hungry during the pandemic he took five million dollars out of his wallet and he donated it to feed children during the pandemic. He's raised $20 million since he arrived in New Orleans in 2006. His foundation has. That doesn't count the money he's taken out of his own pocket as well, which of course includes the $5 million. And since then, he's donated more money for his Breeze uh, Foundation, his dream, Breeze Dream Foundation, whatever it's called. You know, and I think it was Jeff Passon who said to me, you know, you can't bank that stuff. You know, you can't bank up the things that made him an NFL man of the year. He wears that patch on his jersey. He's an NFL man of the year. You know, and I didn't disagree as much as I should have done. Of course you could bank that stuff, right? Because that stuff shows character. It shows what kind of character what kind of man Drew Brees is. You know, so I think it maybe would have been more appropriate to say, look it, Drew and I are going to talk. I want to make sure he knows where I'm coming from. And I want to make sure I know where he's coming from. 
you know, but clearly there's a little disconnect. We're going to work it out. We're going to talk to Drew. We're going to work it out because we know what kind of man he is. We know he's an ally. We didn't like what he just said here. All right. But I'm going to find out what he meant by it, where he's coming from. I'm going to make sure he knows where I'm coming from. We're going to work it out. And by the way, it seems like that's happened for the most part since. Because by the way, Drew Brees is a man of the year. And I knew he'd make it right with his teammates. You know, unfortunately, I don't think his teammates feel the need to make it right with him, but they should. He should have never, never have taken as much of a beating as he did. Shameful. It's shameful. I'll never look at some of those guys again. Mike Thomas is one of them that his comments has really bothered me. You know. I'll never cheer for Mike Thomas quite the same. You know, and then the season started and I felt like everyone wanted to bury Drew Brees. You know, everyone wanted to be really quick to say he was washed up. His ball doesn't travel far enough down the field. He's done. The Saints are done. And the Saints started slow. And they're always slow starters. And they're 2-2. Two and two, And it's been building. And it's been building. And finally, Mike Thomas is done punching teammates. Right? Because if we look at Mike Thomas's 2020. Okay? He started it by crushing Drew Brees. Uh, then he... Played in one game, the first game of the season, where he caught three passes for 17 yards. He hurt his ankle. Uh, Then, while rehabbing his ankle, he punched a teammate and got suspended for a game. Then, hurt his hamstring. And missed every game until he came back the other night. Mike Thomas, $10 million receiver. Punching teammates. Drew Brees did not, did not throw him under the bus. I promise you. And here we are. Eight games, which means we're halfway through the NFL season. Right? It's the halfway point. The Saints, there's been nine weeks. The Saints had a bye, and they played eight games. They've won six, including the last five. They've beat Tampa Bay twice. They're in great. They're in a great spot. They're in the number one seed in the NFC. If the season were to end today, they would be the number one seed. And what about Drew Brees? How's he been this year? Because you might remember his ball doesn't travel far enough down the field. Well, he's got a seventy-four percent completion percentage. That's number one in the league. He has 2,120 yards passing, which means he's on pace for another 4,000 passing yards season. He has 17 touchdown passes and three interceptions. Three interceptions. So that's about a 6 to 1 ratio. Pretty good. He also has run for two touchdowns. So that means 19 total touchdowns. Pretty good. Still pretty good. And I'll tell you what. Nothing. 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 Makes me happier. As a sports fan. Than to turn on my TV. To see the fleur de lis. To see the black and the gold. And to see number nine. And know he's my guy. 
He's on my team, and I've said it for a long time. I'm going to be the last one off the Drew Brees and Sean Payton bandwagon. I'm going to be on there to the very, very end. And you might say, Steve, you're going too far. You know, who are you to tell people how they should feel? You know, whatever. Whatever. I'll tell you how I feel, though. Forget about how other people feel. I'll tell you how I feel. That's my guy. And I could live another hundred years. And I guarantee there will never be a player more important to the New Orleans Saints than to Drew Brees. They're just one. It's impossible. It's impossible because no other player will choose to come to New Orleans the year after Katrina, a 3-13 and season, who played all of their games on the road that year in 2005. But he chose to come, and yeah, I get it. He had a shoulder injury. Right, He needed us too. Nick Saban historically chose Dante Culpepper. Thank God. But it worked out, right? And Drew Brees came to New Orleans. And he reopened the dome with the rest of the 2006 Saints. And Steve Gleason blocked the punt. And we won the division. We got a bye. We got to an NFC Championship game. And the era began. The record-breaking era. We won a Super Bowl. The Saints won a Super Bowl. And he has never, never done anything to make me anything but proud to say that he's my guy. And let me reemphasize that. He has never done anything to make me feel anything but proud that he was my guy and so if that makes you feel a certain way about me I'll accept that I'll accept that you know there's certain people I don't know what's the the overuse thing the hill to die on the Drew Brees Hill is one. I'll, I'll, I'll die on that hill. I will gladly, gladly die on that hill. And by the way, just the other day was one of the best games in the entire Brees and Peyton run. 38-3 on the road against a good opponent. So they're not done yet. They're not done yet.